Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kachi, and this week we are joined by Gotham Gupta, who co-leads TCV's new expansion stage strategy called Velocity. For those that don't know, TCV was founded over 25 years ago and now has over $15 billion invested in over 350 companies. Prior to launching TCV Velocity, Gotham spent time as an investor at General Catalyst and M13, and in between those shops was founder of a company called NatureBox. Given those experiences, it was no surprise that Gotham brought such an interesting point of view to our conversation, and we covered a lot of ground spanning from early to late stage investing. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. This episode of Venture Unlocked is brought to you by Omni. Omni is an investment analytics company dedicated to improving private capital markets. Omni's proprietary technology digitizes hard-to-track, unstructured data from private transaction agreements and organizes it in a structured database through an intuitive dashboard. For investors of all sizes, the insights that are provided by this data improve the manager's ability to build strategy and make better decisions. Today, Omni tracks data from over 250,000 private market transactions to provide anonymous, aggregated market benchmarks. I'm also incredibly excited how Omni's solution helps fund managers provide more insightful and accurate reporting to their investors. To learn more, check them out at www.omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Listeners of Venture Unlocked can sign up for 20% off when you mention Venture Unlocked. Gotham, it's so great to see you and glad you uh, could make it on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Samir. Super excited about uh, what you're building and, and have been a longtime listener as well. So maybe a good place to start is going back through your career. You were an investor first, then turned founder, and then went back to the investing side. And it would be great to hear a little bit of color of all the things you did before joining TCV and ultimately now leading the uh, Velocity effort. Definitely. Some some painful years uh, as a founder. Uh, but, uh, you know, I uh, started my career at General Catalyst. Uh, I was actually really lucky. I, I met the firm uh, when I was in college. And so I started interning for General Catalyst uh, while I was an undergrad. That internship turned into a full-time opportunity. Um, so I started my career there. Uh, it was the early days of General Catalyst. So uh, we were on, I think, Fund 3 at that time. And the firm was a Boston-only firm. I had the opportunity to uh, join. Um, you know, was part of the team that launched the West Coast office, and and you know, kind of planted the General Catalyst flag uh, in Palo Alto. It was actually probably that experience uh, that gave me the entrepreneurial itch to start my own company. And so, in 2012, I left General Catalyst and started a company called NatureBox. And you know, NatureBox is a multi-channel brand of snack food probably as far away from uh, technology investing as you could think. Um, but uh, really, the idea, uh, the reason why the idea resonated was up until going off to college, uh, I had struggled with really bad eating habits. Uh, I was overweight, you know, had a very poor diet. Luckily, I learned about nutrition, and I was able to lose 70 pounds in six months through diet and exercise. Um, and so for me, NatureBox was a combination of building a business in a market that I believed in, uh, just the size of the market, the trends, uh, as well as uh, a product that I was passionate about in terms of healthier foods and, and 
you know, kind of more nutrition-based offerings. I ran that business as CEO for six and a half years, uh, lots of ups and downs. Uh, it was very much a roller coaster ride. Uh, feel like every bad thing that happened probably did happen and every mistake I could have made, I probably did mistake uh, or made. Um, but, uh, you know, we finally got the business cash flow positive um, in 2018. And I decided to go back to venture investing at that time. Um, really, with the thinking that, you know, I've been on both sides of the table and now having been a CEO, what could I do as a VC to be a better partner to companies? Um, and so that's very much how I, I approach my job today uh, is, is, you know, how can I be the CEO's first phone call and what can I do to, to kind of put myself in, in their shoes? As somebody that's been a founder before, I'd love for you to touch on some of those experiences and how being on the other side and working with investors has shaped your investment philosophy today. Yeah, I think it, it, I'm a big fan of trying to simplify things, right? Because I, I just feel like, you know, uh, complexity is is sort of uh, the, the root of evil, uh, especially in startups and, and investing at times. Um, but, you know, I, I sort of think of it as two things. One is um, being direct. Uh, I think it, it would just shock you, you know, how many investors struggle to be direct about, you know, their perspective of the business, how they think a CEO is performing, what they think is not going well, or, you, you know, I mean, just, you know, I think everyone sort of lives in the, in the bullshit sandwich, you know, and, and, um, forgets to actually deliver real feedback and, and be pretty direct when doing it. So, so that's number one is like just being transparent, direct, making sure that the CEO understands what your perspective is on the business, even if you don't agree. Right. I think that's uh, very, very important. Um, and then I would say the the second thing is, you know, what's right for the company and the founder may not be right for the venture fund. And, you know, look, we were in a business where uh, it's a next generation or tech enabled CPG brand, right? It probably wasn't right to try to grow that business five or 10x year over year, right? And the amount of capital that you needed to try to drive that level of growth wasn't right for the business, right? But ultimately, that was the model and, and arguably is the model in venture, right? Is you're looking for companies that can absorb a certain amount of capital and drive a certain level of growth. Um, and so I think where companies and, and VCs fall into issue often is where there's just misalignment on what's good for the company, which may mean slowing down. It may mean having, you know, blowing through a quarter, right, in order to fix some fundamental problem in the business versus what's good for the VC, right, which may be uh, growth at not necessarily to say growth at all costs, but growth uh, as the strategic imperative um, and, and, you know, sustaining that level of growth until an outcome can be, can be had. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit more because I, I do think there's a lot of companies that ultimately do take on venture money early and jump on that venture treadmill. And at some point, there might be this divergence in terms of, is the company truly a venture scale company versus it's a good company that has fairly good growth, great customers, but at the end of the day, is not going to be a fund returner. You're now investing in companies that are expansion stage. I'd love to hear exactly what that means to you and how are you identifying whether a company truly is a venture backable company versus a company that might have taken on venture money, but just really doesn't fit the, the model of what you really need to return the fund. 
And, and I feel like there's no, um, you know, there's no crystal ball here, right. Uh, in the sense of obviously we get things wrong, uh, you know, companies change and evolve. Um, but I think much of it goes to dynamics in the market, right? Like if I think about the nature box experience, CPG is just historically a market that where the growth rates have not been like technology, right. And where, the way you build a CPG business is different. You know, it's not um, necessarily the uh, style of customer acquisition that you might have in a tech business, right? Um, and the you know length of retention or repeat volume that you might have in in a consumer subscription business, for example. Um, and so, I, I think you know some of it goes back to the market dynamics and just understanding you know historically like what market are you playing in and, and, you know, what about technology enables uh, a different paradigm in that market? And then I think that, you know, separately, um, you know, a lot of it also just comes down to ambition of the management team, uh, you know, and, and founder, uh, how, how far they want to go with it, right. And how big of a business they want to build, you know, vision around product expansion and, and, you know, kind of where the product roadmap could take you. But like I said, I don't think there's a, a definitive science on these things. Like we spend a lot of our time understanding quality of growth more so than just the raw growth metrics, um, and I'm sure it's true of many investors, right? Like it doesn't matter that a business was able to double or triple year over year. It's is the durability of that growth there. Right. Um, and, and such that it can be replicable. Right. And so that's what we spend a lot of time thinking about. Yeah, that all makes sense. And an area that I want to spend a little bit of time on is where you now operate with your partner, which is expansion stage investing at TCV. And TCV, historically, many of us would think as a large growth stage investor, investing checks that are 50 million, 100 million, maybe more. And we have seen over the last few years, many large firms migrate earlier, sometimes within a single fund. In your case, it's a separate fund within the uh, TCV, TCV umbrella. Can you touch a little bit on the strategy and why TCV decided to go down the path of setting up a separate firm going earlier stage with smaller checks. So, you know, the Velocity Fund is is the fund that uh, my partner, Matt Brennan, and I run. Um, and it's really focused on series A, B, and C stage fu funding rounds. Um, what led to the creation of the Velocity Fund was uh, a, a few things. Um, you know, first, TCB as a firm recognized that we had a significant amount of coverage of these types of financing rounds just by virtue of the investor networks that we've built, uh, the data engine that the firm has invested in and, and um, continue to scale. Uh, and, and then obviously, um, you know, the portfolio that we've built, right? Um, you know, just by virtue of having uh, been involved in some amazing companies, uh, we see a lot of great companies at earlier stages. Um, and we think that we've got a pretty unique product and perspective for those companies, right? And, and the reason for that is, Unlike many firms that operate at the expansion stage, we've come at it from a later stage DNA, right? Define expansion stage for everybody. Yeah, for sure. When we think of expansion stage, and I, I, it's probably one of these things you ask 10 people, you're going to get 11 uh, answers. We think of it as post-product market fit, 
but in the early stages of repeatability, right? So early phase of building a repeatable go-to-market engine, um, you know, but there's some signals of product market fit, usually defined by, you know, a couple million dollars of revenue on the low end, all the way up to 10 or $20 million of revenue on the high end. And so, so just going back to what I was saying, like, TCB really felt like we had a unique product and perspective for companies at this stage, having had and having, you know, built the firm around later stage and taking companies, you know, from a later stage through IPO firms been uh, lucky and fortunate to have 78 IPOs in its history, um, lived through multiple economic cycles. Um, and so we really felt like, you know, if you look at uh, the landscape of people investing at this stage, it was mostly earlier stage firms doubling down or extending their position in companies that were breaking out across their portfolio. Um, but we could bring an additive perspective, right? A different perspective um, of what you need to get from there through IPO, right? And even many years beyond IPO. And then I would say the the other key component of this was TCB as a firm being a crossover investor has a very long-term orientation. And so we felt like we could be uh, a, you know, ideal partner to earlier stage companies and those CEOs to enable them to think long-term about their business, because now they have a capital partner that can invest across the private market stages, as well as double down in the IPO and buy more stock and hold post IPO. And so we really felt like if, if you think about the long-term orientation of the firm and not needing to look for an early exit or, you know, not viewing the IPO as an exit, but more as a buying opportunity, that also made us very, um, you know, sort of differentiated. Uh, and, and so, you know, Matt and I were, were incredibly thrilled with the opportunity to come build this and, and, you know, just felt like the firm, the brand of the firm and the strategy of the firm combined with the structure being a separate team, you know, dedicated team and a dedicated fund was the right way to do it. And, and so it was a great combination of the two. Something I'd like to get your take on is this prevailing sentiment by many early stage funders that many of these firms that have come upstream from later stage or even public investing into the early stage are often ill-equipped to help founders. What's your overall take on that? And as somebody that sits within a firm that's historically later stage, how do you think about overall pros and cons? Yeah. I mean, I think with anything, there's pros and cons. Um, you know, from my perspective, having been a CEO, I really felt, and, and I, I, you know, I think this is why um, having a separate fund makes a lot of sense. As a CEO, you, you want to know that you matter, right? No one wants to know that they're, or think that they're an option bet, right? Um, and, and so, and, and just as a tangent on that, you know, my company was orphaned. We had two large investors. We were orphaned at both uh, firms. And so the two investor board seats went through five board members in less than three years. Right. And so I think, you know, there's pros and cons of scale and big firms and all of this. At the end of the day, I think, you know, founders value the ability to have consistency, you know, and, and be treated like they really matter as part of a fund. Right. And it's hard to say that when you're half a percent, you know, the investment in your company is half a percent of the fund versus 5% or 10% of the fund, right? Um, and so I think this is where we really felt like our strategy could be differentiated. And, and 
better position for the founder where every TCV fund is roughly 20 to 25 companies. And so we are running an active and concentrated strategy um, regardless of whether it's coming out of the Velocity Fund or TCV's growth fund. Um, and so, you know, but but that's not to say that, you know, every firm that does it a different way is wrong. It's just to say that, you know, I think we sort of were trying to lean into historically what has served TCV well and how we wanted to operate and sort of, you know, what we thought would lead to success. Um, I think there are pros and cons, right? You know, having the scale of, hundreds of companies in the portfolio and the connection connectivity across that scale could also be valuable. And it is interesting because we have seen so many firms, you know, whether it be TCV with velocity and sort of the core or other firms uh, like your ex firm general catalyst also doing different products, maybe around credit or some of the other firms that are uh, multi-geographic in nature, whether it's India, Europe, or, um, you know, areas, um, you know, such as Asia, for example, how do you think about, you know, when you're under an umbrella, creating your own sort of branding? Because at the end of the day, the type of firms, the type of entrepreneurs you're working with are much earlier in their, you know, stages and development, because the common uh, denotation is going to be TCV is a growth firm. What are they doing over here? It's, it's one of the, um, you know, I think challenges and things that, that we're working on, which is we really want you to think of TCV as Series A through IPO. Uh, to your point, you know, many folks may think of the firm as kind of a later stage growth equity firm. Um, and I think that that's true of many firms that have expanded over the years and, you know, have multiple products. Um, I think, you know, the, the uh, way that we've kind of approached this is we want you to think of TCV, right? Not necessarily TCV velocity, TCV growth. You know, the, hopefully, if we do our jobs well, some of that will fade into the background in the sense that you as a founder know that, you know, TCV is the right partner for you regardless of stage, right? It's not up to you to figure out, you know, do I, how do I get an intro to Gotham and Matt over at Velocity versus someone else in, uh, on the growth side? That we hope to completely, uh, you know, remove from the picture. It's, you know, it's one team, everyone's working for the success of the firm, you know, but we hope that you think of us as a partner across all stages. And, and so I think it's, a, it's definitely one of the challenges. I, we're working towards it. I think it's one of these things where it, it does take some time um, where, you know, you're in the market, letting people know what, what we're doing. We're building a portfolio, uh, doing things like this. I mean, you know, it just takes uh, time and, and sort of all of these things compound uh, against each other. You mentioned that founders should think of TCV across the life cycle from early to late. And presumably that gives the firm a great institutional lens on all parts of the private market as well as the public markets. And, you know, ha having been through multiple cycles, I started my career in 99, went through the dot-com bubble and bust, and then again in 08, 09. Given that we've seen such a violent reset in the market, I'd love to hear what TCV's institutional view on the markets today are and how it's really affecting investment behavior and decision-making. And it's so funny, Samir, that you bring up uh, 2008, 2009, because similar, you, you know, I started uh, full-time at General Catalyst in 2007. And so we had a year or so of, of good times and then 
Uh, it's just, you know, the next 12 to 18 months was brutal. Uh, and I remember distinctly remember we had an investment that we wanted to do, uh, and it was a $1.5 million check, right? And the conversation, uh, in our partner meetings was around, do we, should we really call capital right now? And, you know, do we want to make this investment because, you know, it's not a great time period for our LPs and, and, you know, and, and look, it's kind of funny now to think about a one and a half million dollar check, uh, getting that level of kind of scrutiny. Right. I, I think it's so di- the world is so different today, right. In terms of the just scale of the venture asset class, I think there are some constants, right. That, you know, LPs are fatigued in terms of how quickly capital has been deployed um, and how quickly funds have come back to market. So I think there's there's some constants around just, you know, being a good uh, fiduciary for our LPs and being thoughtful about the stress that some of these institutions face today uh, in terms of, you know, asset allocation and, and, you know, just the demands of this asset class. For us, you know, as we look at it from a day-to-day uh, perspective, I would say the private market has not yet reset in the way that the public market has. And much of that is just a lag effect, right? It's companies went out and raised a ton of money last year. They still have that capital on the balance sheet. There's no reason for many of them to go and raise more capital today in what will surely be a a harder uh, climate and and where they may face a down round, lower valuations. Um, And so I think we haven't seen the reset the way that the public market has and as swift as the public market has seen. That being said, I think it's coming. Uh, You know, I think that there will be uh, a much, and uh, you're seeing it just in terms of deal volume, a flight to quality, uh, you know, round sizes are compressing, much more attention being paid to fundamentals, multiples compressing. So I think it's coming. It's just that the data points are so few and far between at this point. I think you're right. And, you know, historically, at least, you know, we've been taught that the private markets lag by six to 12 months, typically to the, pri- you know, to the public markets. It does seem right now, at least it's not showing up when it comes to valuations, because a lot of those companies, to your point, have not come back to market for their new rounds. And of course, we've seen some companies, you know, including a buy now, pay later company that, of course, went from 45 billion to, uh, to 6 billion with, uh, you know, Klarna. But, you know, ultimately, I, you know, what we are seeing, and I'm curious to hear your perspective is, you know, deal volume, particularly at the late stages, has kind of fallen off a cliff. Very few deals are being done, both because of the mismatch of expectations, as well as, you know, companies just being flush with capital and not needing to test the capital markets. Deals are taking longer. There's much more diligence being done on these companies versus meeting a company on Friday and then having to issue a term sheet, you know, the following, um, you know, week, right? Which you know, we were saying, are there any things that you're seeing at the expansion stage that you have sh- seen shifted at all in terms of whether it's your process or some of the expectations that founders have in, in raising capital? I mean, I think I'll give you a couple things that have changed or maybe are a bit different. So, so one is um, you used to, I think last year, see a lot less syndication right? It was a lot less, there were fewer opportunities where you're co-leading also just 
generally people didn't care the quality of the syndicate. I think now, and, and it, it makes sense. It's intuitive, right? That, you know, Hey, if we're investing in business, we want to know that everyone around the table has deep pockets can help support the company, a lot more focus placed on the quality of the syndicate going in and also uh, openness to co-leading or to having more investors involved in a given financing. Right. Um, so, so I think that's one, I think two, uh, again, is very in- intuitive around pro rata and just reserves, right? Anytime you go through a, a market climate like today's, firms are going to have uh, pro rata and, and reserves stretched, right? And so um, the, the number of commitments will greatly outweigh the amount of dollars. Uh, and so I think founders have to be really realistic about who's coming back uh, in the next round, who has the capital to support, um, and probably get ahead of some of those conversations if they haven't already, right? Um, because you know that could make the next round hard, right? Especially if you don't have enough support internally. Um, and then maybe just lastly, um, I would say um, processes are are moving a lot slower, right? So it's it's no longer the, to your point, it's no longer the do a phone call. Hey, let me send you the data room. And if you could let us know by Friday, you, you know, um, it's definitely more of the, let's do the call to get to know you. Let's, you know, f- talk to people that we know in the market. Let's talk to your existing investors. You know, the, the, the sort of more traditional venture process I think is starting to prevail, um, which is much more quality of diligence and, and also just a better, more relationship building time, which you know, hopefully will, will, serve the founder and the investor well, um, you know, fewer shotgun marriages. It's certainly a better way to determine whether there are synergies, um, both from a personality as well as an organizational standpoint. And and so that, that kind of leads me to the question of, okay, now that the, you know, you, you mentioned this flight to quality, which simply means like the deals that are with great traction, great teams still have a lot of capital available to them with the amount of dry powder. And in 2020 and 21, we certainly saw some firms take the, uh, you know, we are going to win by writing a higher price and we are not going to take a board seat and we're going to write a big check. What do you think wins in those, let's call it for lack of a better term, flight to quality deals right now, given that there's still a lot of capital, a lot of different competitors, how do you think about competing in today's market? You have to be willing to pay the market price, right? So I think if you're in the market trying to discount shop, that's not uh, the right place to play. It's also, you know, really not, in my view, the definition of flight to quality, right? Which is you want to buy the best assets and maybe you're less price sensitive, more so than being sensitive around the quality of the business that you're investing in. Um, so I think that that, um, you know, is is paramount in terms of being able to deploy capital in today's climate is, you know, you, you're looking for a great business, but in order to uh, convince the founder and the cap table, the shareholders to, to raise additional capital, it's not going to be a poke you in the eye kind of valuation, right? It's, it's, you know, maybe it'll be flat and maybe that's fair. Maybe it'll be up and maybe that'll be fair too, right? Uh, it, you know, it depends on the situation. But my only point is, is just, uh, I don't think it's discount shopping because I think that's how you 
end up in in you know just lower quality assets, right? And maybe feel better about the entry point, but you know not feel as good about the quality of the the company. Um, and then second to that is is just management teams. Like I think where uh, great businesses separate themselves uh, from okay businesses is they continue to place CEOs continue to place high degree of focus on the quality of the management team and, and, you know, continue to, to, you know, opportunistically build around them and, and build the talent density. Um, and so I think that's key as well. So during really hot times, like we've seen over the last, most of the last decade and certainly 20 and 21 is that companies were being rewarded for top line revenue and the growth of that top right line revenue. And in many cases, multiples that were 50 to 100x versus the long-term public multiples of enterprise companies, let's say being 5 to 10x. That still holds true. We've obviously more recently saw the uh, the massive acquisition of Figma by Adobe for $20 billion, which again was a huge multiple on revenue, but done largely because of strategic reasons. You know, I was talking to an investor recently about this and they were thinking about exits, and while they weren't looking at the type of exits that we saw in 20 and 21 as being normalized, they also believed that many companies will still achieve these large right tail outcomes because of strategic reasons where they are so disruptive to a large incumbent that you know those 10, 20 billion dollar type of exits are still possible. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I, I view it as a continuation of power law. So it's it's really that um, the size of outcome is bigger today than it's ever been in the past. Uh, and the industry itself has become more skewed by power law than it has been in the past, right? And so I feel like if you combine those two things, it sort of explains a lot of, of what we see in the market today, which is you know how a company like a Figma which is a one of one, very special company, very has high strategic value to a company like Adobe, trades at such a high multiple because it is that one of one, you know, player where the numbers have just the scale of the numbers have got it has become so much bigger, right? But rest assured, you know, there it's not making tech crunch, but you still have the flip side of of the curve, right? Which is all of the companies that are not that special or, you know, have not broken out, um, that will struggle to raise capital, um, and will struggle to find an outcome. I just think it's, you know, you don't hear as much about that. Right. But, but I think the reality is that the opportunity set in venture is so much bigger today than it's ever been, you know, and yes, the outcomes are are bigger too. And so it just, is being skewed by power law and the, the business continues to be reinforced by, by power law. Yeah, and the power law, obviously, at the early stages, really dictates everything from a return standpoint. It's also one of the the most challenging things in that you have to create some type of process or repeatability of finding those outliers pretty consistently that have these almost unbounded outcomes. From your standpoint, or is there a certain rubric you use in evaluating companies that helps you determine whether a potential company can be, or a potential investment rather, can be one of those outlier companies. 
Yeah. And I think it's, it's funny Two two thoughts on, uh, on, on this, it, you know, it's funny to think about what some of those memos 10 years ago probably said, you know, in terms of size of outcome. I mean, uh, it, it, you know, the, the sort of lack of imagination that we all had, right. Of, of how big of a market there really was. But I, I think today, you, you know, the way that we think about, um, underwriting investment, you know, I think some of it and a, a good portion of it is really to stress, you know, value our portfolio construction, right? It's, it's, you know, leave aside the actual numbers, right? Of how big we think the business can get and, and that sort of thing. I think the exercise of, of, you know, thinking about what the return scenario looks like in many ways is to say, Hey, is this right for the portfolio that we're building? Right. In terms of the amount of ownership we, we need or want to have across the portfolio, such that, you know, when we get the one home run or two home runs in the portfolio, you know, we, we can see a, um, you know, benefit from the power law and can see a, a, a great return across the fund. Um, you know, knowing that a high percentage of, of companies may end up not hitting that bar, right? But at least we went into it, setting it up such that we owned enough and we had enough dollars into the business that, you know, if it truly uh, uh, hit plan or, you know, whatever we thought was possible, um, that, that it could return the fund, right? And so I view it as, as maybe less so about the, um, the exact numbers and, and the math behind, um, you know, like w- what you assume for multiples and things like that, as much as it is uh, in exercise in, in making sure that you're staying consistent with whatever your, portfolio, your fund strategy is and your portfolio construction model. Yeah, when you look at portfolio construction, of course, at the end of the day, you are looking at this mathematical outcome you're looking to achieve. And for most, you know, let's say early stage funds, if you can get to a 3x net, that would generally put you in the top quartile pretty consistently. Maybe the last 10 years, we've seen some skew because of how hot, hot the markets are. But on a go forward basis, I mean, if you think about a 3x net, it's three and a half to 4x gross. And ultimately, you're right, we are, as human beings, not great at underwriting exponential scale. We're much more linear in in our thought process. But there are going to be companies, as you mentioned, to this, uh, this notion of flight to quality, where you may have to relax some of your portfolio construction, whether it is the size of the check you write, or the ownership you get. How do you think about those exceptions? I think for us, and, and maybe it's skewed by fund one where we're trying not to make as many of those exceptions. Uh, you know, I think for, for us and, and just thinking more broadly, it's too easy to argue conviction in the opportunity, right? Because I, you could say you should only be investing in companies where you've got tremendous amount of conviction and that you could take, you know, you'd be happy. Let's say you wanted to invest 10 million, but you'd be happy to have 5 million in the company because you think the opportunity is that large. So I think it's too easy to, to, you know, sit back and say, well, conviction on, on this opportunity or this could be unbounded. I I think that that is a slippery slope. I I think more of it uh, may come from the ability um, to double down over time or, you know, that the effect of viewing the first check as a door in, right, but not necessarily the overall position when the fund is fully baked. And I think that that is probably a more disciplined way to to look at it, right, which is, and it's true, right, like often if you get into a, a great company, you know, at an early stage, there are opportunities to deploy additional capital, 
And yes, you're cost averaging up. So you may not hit the bar on ownership, but you'll definitely be able to hit the bar on, you know, just overall capital exposure into the business. Um, and so, so I think that that's probably more kind of uh, uh, realistic, uh, you know, way to look at those, those situations. It makes sense. And in what you're describing is like multiple investments or across multiple rounds out of the same fund, where yes, you are cost averaging up and the multiples on that check at the time will compress, but the more dollars can get you to the point where a single company can still get you a fund returner type of position. When you know you think about those follow on checks, one of the things that I've always seen investors um, struggle with a little bit is when to continue backing a company versus walking away. And, you know, once you make an investment, the, you know, the idea from the founder is you're going to back me through the next round. You're going to be there with me and you want to be founder friendly. You have to think about reputation, uh, of course, in the industry. But how do you think about the tough decision of not going pro rata? I think pro rata is one of those things that it's sort of the lazy decision, right? Is to just take pro rata. Ideally, you should be either leaning in uh, and wanting to do more than your pro rata or leaning out and wanting to do as little as possible, realizing that sometimes you have to do some amount of uh, make some uh, investment in a follow on round just to get the round done. I think the the best way that, that we've approached it is to start to define kind of what I would say is a pre-mortem for lack of a better word, um, not necessarily to the negative, but also to the positive. But at the time of the investment, what are you looking for the company to achieve in order to put more dollars into the business? I think that, you know, if you can define those ahead of time, then it becomes a much more objective decision uh, when it comes to, you know, hey, we're doing a uh, next round of funding or, being able to preempt around, right. Um, to say, yeah, this company is on track and on the dimensions that you've defined, right. Because as we know, companies at this stage, you're always going to be, some things are going to be good. Some things are going to be bad, right. It's never going to be check the box on, on everything. Um, and so I think you have to define what are the, the metrics or what are the object, the initiatives that are really key to driving success in this business and where is the business tracking on those, and, and try to make the, the decision as objective as possible. You know, some firms have uh, other partner, non-investing partners, uh, you know, make decisions on, on follow-on. I think that's also smart and, and really interesting because it's just taking the subjectivity and, and the personal bias out of the decision-making, which I think is really smart. And it continues to be one that there's a lot of gray area. There's no perfect answer on these things. And I do think it's always a balance. But some of the best investors in the world, they've actually done so well because they know when not to uh, do their full prorators versus just, as you mentioned, the lazy decision. Now that you've been in, you know, with TCV for well over a year now, and I know you've been through different partnerships, uh, you know, working, starting with GC, now doing this. I'd love to hear some of your, or maybe your biggest learning as an investor and if there was a piece of advice your today self could give your 2007 GC self, what would it be? 
Yeah, stay in venture. Uh, so no, um, I think um, uh, on a more serious note, I think the the biggest piece of advice uh, I would give myself 15 years ago, and and uh, I, I you know I think it's something that a lot of investors um, think a lot about is how do you position yourself to take the bet on exceptional people and really remember that this business at the end of the day comes down to backing exceptional founders. There's a hundred reasons to talk yourself out of any investment. Uh, and, and often, you know, the best, most nonlinear investments look a little weird and have, uh, you know, founders that maybe are not, uh, the, you know, don't look like whatever, uh, archetype of success you might have in your portfolio. Um, but, but I think one of the things that I, uh, regret in the past and, and try to remind myself constantly is to take the bet on exceptional people because, um, you know, in the fullness of time, exceptional people build great businesses. Uh, and, and regardless of whether you're in a great business with an exceptional person, just being in the ecosystem of those people tends to be a great path to, to returns. Right. And so it, 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 you know, there's so many people that now, 15 years later, I've seen from the general catalyst days, you know, the business that they were running 15 years ago, maybe didn't work out, but then the next one. Right. Um, and, and so I just think it's this compounding effect of, of being in business with, with amazing people. Uh, and, and it's sort of, you got to take a portfolio approach on it. Right. It, it, it you know, even if the first, uh, uh swing, uh, uh, catches error, it, you know, it doesn't mean that, that it was the wrong call. And this is slightly an unfair question, but I, I, I do agree with you. It is, um, you know, at the end of the day, you're betting on people. Just like when an LP invests on, within a firm, you're betting on the investors, having something ex- exceptional about them. And we've long tried to define what makes an exceptional investor. What are the characteristics? But in, in the context of exceptional founders, are there any commonalities within these exceptional founders, at least from a trait standpoint that you've recognize as a pattern? I mean, I think there's a few that come right to mind, right? So one is just insatiable appetite to learn. Uh, these are people that are always trying to improve their game uh, and, and co- they're just learning machines, right? Uh, I think two is level of ambition. How they want to impact the world is just the scale of that impact is, is just different from 99% of other people that you meet. Um, and then uh, I would say the the third is is sort of you know, it's, it's that, uh, line about, uh, I think it was Jordan or, or, you know, someone, uh, you know, the amount of pain that, that you can suffer and, and it's just hunger and perseverance, right. Being, being, you know, sort of, um, willing to, to go through the roller coaster ride time and time again, um, you know, in, in pursuit of, of something greater. Well, a lot of these traits actually could apply both to the, inve- to the investor side as well. And you've been on both sides, you know, both as a founder and, and now as an investor and, I really appreciate the thoughts here. It's been uh, it's been really fun. Excited about what you're building at TCV Velocity. It sounds like an incredible new franchise. And again, thanks so much for being on. No, thank you for having me. Uh, super excited about Allocate and, and uh, uh, hopefully today was helpful. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Gotham. To learn more about him or TCV, be sure to go to ventureunlock.substack.com for detailed notes of the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. 
And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.